This is the place where the explicit language warning goes. But on this podcast, there is no explicit language. Think of it as like the page on a legal document that says, this page intentionally left blank. Friday, July 15th, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. New York Times headline, how one senator doomed the Democrats' climate plan. Huh? Who would that one senator be? Could be Deb Fisher, Steve Daines, Roger Wicker, Tom Tillis, Kevin Kramer, James Lankford, Mike Rounds, Bill Haggerty. I mean, these were all senators equally culpable for dooming the Dems' climate plan. None of them are Dems, but they're all against the Dems' climate plan. If they had a full vote, which they won't, that vote would be 49 to 51. I'm just naming some of the 51. But of course, the Times and you know that that's not what anyone means. They weren't talking about Dan Sullivan or the John Boozmans of the world. Here was the first quote in that Times article from John Podesta. Quote, it seems that Manchin would choose as his legacy to be the one man who single-handedly doomed humanity. So he's like Thanos. If Thanos were a man and voted for Chuck Schumer as majority leader, but then showed his true self. Also, Thanos' argument is he's saving humanity. Let's table that for a moment. None of this excuses Joe Manchin, a guy with a D next to his name, but conservatism in his soul, in his state, and in his self-interest. He has a bit humaneous heart, it's true, and he did indicate he was open to voting for electric vehicles and cap and trade and other necessary, though not perfect, measures to bring down greenhouse gas emissions. And now he won't. And with that decision, the planet is worse off than it otherwise would be, which, by the way, as a baseline, ain't that great to begin with. All true, Manchin deserves your anger. Even as a senator in the most Trump-backing state in the country, you know, even though that's true, he's also a senator who's a politician who, when he gives his word, should keep it. And essentially, that's not what happened. But you know who else broke a vow? Who actually is more deserving of the title? The one man who single-handedly doomed humanity? This guy. Our campaign is about something much bigger than just me. Recognize the voice? No, don't bet you do. He's on the side of the children, for children are proxies for goodness, and goodness should carry the day. I think the moral compass of our children right now is, is, is very true. He is Cal Cunningham, businessman, veteran, and as of this date two years ago, a guy up 12 points in a CNBC poll of North Carolina Senate voters. Democrat Cal Cunningham had the resume, the barrel chest, the message, the weak opponent in Republican Tom Tillis. And he told the guys at Pod Save America he got it. Now, this is the kind of candidate I am, this is the kind of Democrat I am. I went over and introduced myself to the Trump to the Trump table. Uh-huh. And I said, so what do y'all think of our junior senator, Tom Tillis? Now, these are their words, yeah. not mine. They say he's immoral and unethical. They say he flip-flops. He doesn't know who he is, and we don't trust him. Immoral and unethical politicians are on notice from your guy, Cal Cunningham. Cut to this. I want you to hear something directly from me. I am deeply sorry for the hurt that I have caused in my personal life. And I also apologize to all of you. Cal Cunningham had an affair, not years ago, that just surfaced. 
in July as he was running for senator. And while not illegal under the law, it was in fact unlawful under military code as his lover was the rank of a lower ranking soldier. Cal Cunningham was an army reservist. That was a big selling point. And Cunningham seemingly was in violation of the uniformed code of military justice. So Cunningham lost a winnable race, a race that would have given after the Georgia runoffs, would have given the Democrats a 51-49 majority in the Senate. And that, at least on the climate bill, would have made Joe Manchin anthracite-inflected afterthought. Blame for the alleged dooming of humanity could have at least been spread around a little. On the show today, I spiel about how the horrible details of a 10-year-old sexual assault victim, those details by themselves were not enough to make for a culture-dominating story, though that is what the stories become. But first, black women have three times the maternal mortality rates as white women. Yesterday, we talked about weathering, microaggressions, and cortisol levels, but I did have more questions on why those effects weren't showing up in Hispanic women who have lower maternal mortality than white women. To get to these answers and some serious implications of the American health system, I'm joined once more by Linda Villarosa, author of Under the Skin, The Hidden Toll of Racism on American Lives and on the Health of Our Nation. In the United States, the health outcomes of black Americans are worse than white Americans and worse than the country as a whole by many, many measures. The reasons are varied. Linda Villarosa, author of Under the Skin, The Hidden Toll of Racism on American Lives and on the Health of Our Nation, offered up many reasons yesterday, and they included racism, which must be grappled with. I agree. But why is it that Hispanic Americans, the largest non-white ethnic group, have longer lifespans than white people, lower cardiac disease, lower cancer rates? I earnestly wanted to put these questions to my guests. They have always puzzled me, as they have many researchers in the field. So I hope you will judge this to be a productive exchange. Here is part two of my interview with Linda Villarosa. So I was very interested in what California did to lower maternal mortality. And I've done a couple interviews with people who are inside that system. And it turns out, as you write in your book, that they, one of the main things that they did was use empirical measures, like say, measuring the actual amount of placenta or blood loss, not just eyeballing it and injecting subjectivity. So they replaced subjectivity with objectivity. And that has had amazing effects. So those statistics about how maternal mortality in America is getting worse while the rest of the world is getting better. California is now on a par with those highly advanced European countries. I will also acknowledge, as you do, that the gap between white and black remains. But I just want to talk about that. Why isn't, for all the solutions, why isn't the main solution, let's look at what they did in our biggest state to solve the problem in every regard except the gap between black and white? Well, I think that we should celebrate California because that is remarkable. They lowered their maternal mortality by 55%, but it mostly um, uh, benefited white women. 
And what the other thing that California did, and California is a leader in this area of these perinatal quality controls and maternal quality controls, and other states followed, but other states also, including Louisiana, Louisiana followed California, but broke off and said, wait, we have to address the idea that even though it worked, it only, it mostly benefited white women. So the other thing that California did and Louisiana was add in um, tr- implicit bias training to healthcare providers first that work with birthing people, pregnant and birthing people. And now um, it is mandated by law in California recently that all healthcare providers have to have, as part of their continuing education, have to have some kind of anti-racism and and implicit bias training, which I find remarkable and really interesting. I think we don't know how well it's worked. First, it happened, you know, during COVID, it went into effect. And second, it ha- we haven't had long enough to see if it'll work. In Louisiana, they certainly did a interesting job. They, you know, Louisiana is a very poor state with terrible maternal outcome, maternal and infant outcomes. Yeah, it's usually the worst or second worst in the country. Mississippi is usually the worst, and Louisiana yep. is right up there. And so, um, in several hospitals, they implemented this. They haven't seen a huge change, and but they have seen incremental changes. And I applaud them for looking at a state where, like California, where they're doing things right. They have more money. They have more resources. They did this. They tried this. And then they um, had a course correction to say, wait, we have to have a, a, a better, you know, a, a bigger nod toward the idea that there is some kind of discrimination baked into our system. Right. So I think that the main beneficiary was Latino woman, women because... In California, there are about 450,000 births a year and uh, 200 something thousand are Hispanic women and about 125,000 are white women. Um, so it would, you know, of course, in terms of race, Hispanic isn't a race. So maybe you are using white and Hispanic together. But I do, I look at those statistics and I've looked at them hard. You can look at it a couple ways. I think in the last couple years, there's been, you know, no improvement with black maternal mortality. But from its worst year, I think it was a rate of uh, 50 something deaths per 100,000. And then they brought it down to, you know, 25 per 100,000. Now it's somewhere around 37 deaths per 100,000. But also it's very complicated, as you know, because every year there are only about 25, I mean, it's a lot of, it's it's a huge state. So I'm gonna say only about 25,000 black women give birth. But that means that even if you have a small number of um, women who die who wouldn't have with other interventions, you know, two or three, it really does skew the statistics. I completely hear what you're saying. And, you know, from a scientific sort of point of view, there's also, I'm forgetting his name, there's a beautiful husband that um, I he was on a podcast with me. And I remember he had lost his wife um, in California, even though they were upper middle class and it was terrible. And I remember on, I could hear the sound of the children in the background, like the kid survived. Maybe they were twins. The mom died. And I could hear him with the kids. And I just thought, you know, I, I'm a numbers person. I'm evidence-based as best I can like you. But I also, you know, my heart went out to this man. And I just think, um, I love what California did. But I think that we, it doesn't hurt to keep trying to make this better. And um, I 
when you're me, you do hear more than your fair share of stories, um, you know, basically every day of some Black woman, um, often of means, who, um, you know, just had some tragedy. I think also when I was working on my maternal and infant mortality story, I did not, in 2017, I did not expect to see um, the subject of my article treated so badly in front of me. Yeah, and I, I hear you too. And this was the story you wrote about uh, Simone Landrum. Yes. Which was a huge story in the New York Times that was a National Magazine Award finalist. And you were right there. She had lost, she had lost one baby. Then she goes back to a different hospital, but they know about this and they you're right there in the delivery room and she is not treated well. It was shocking. And then mm. I was uh, giving a grand rounds to a group of OBGYNs and it was interesting because I thought, wow, I just showed this terrible thing that happened and I have all this evidence about, you know, these issues. And I introduced, you know, to the New York Times magazine, at least, the weathering concept. And the first thing that they asked me was, how did you sneak into the <laughs> delivery room? <laughs> like, well, I'm glad I did because then I got to see this and I could talk about this. It's a, It felt like a blind spot. Yeah. And the answer to how you snuck in was you were just there because she invited you and no one even asked, right? No, they thought I was her aunt. Yeah. <laughs> I guess, I guess it, uh, you know, the OBGYN has a lot going on and they don't turn to the extra person in the delivery room and say, by the way, you're a reporter for the New York Times. It just doesn't come up. <laughs> well, when the photographer came, she said, I'm a photographer for the New York Times. <laughs> but oh, she came wow. after the baby. I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> and what did, how'd they react then? Uh, badly. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> There's one other area. There are so many I want to talk about. The idea of racial correction. So this is, and to some extent, it goes back to really discredited, if you want to even call them theories that were developed by Thomas Jefferson or some horrible supposed eugenicist uh, doctor to explain the difference between the races in things like kidney function, in things like lung capacity. So you write a lot about racial correction, and there is a movement to, well, how would you describe it? To reform that or just to abolish the idea that there are differences in the races when it comes to measures such as the ones I mentioned? I think it's to abolish um, them and to just look at um, human beings and their bodies as human beings and not as a racial category. I think that it you know, I I have used a lot of racial data, and I'm really interested in it. And it was the basis of my work. But I think if individual um, physicians and other healthcare providers, and certainly machines, are calibrating, you know, are calibrated differently for people according to race, without taking into consideration other things, I think the example I give is with the spirometer is I grew up in Denver, which is the Mile High City. So I came to a few years ago to my physician and recovering from bronchitis. And so she used a spirometer to measure my lung function. I would later find out that the spirometer still has the race correction. And I just thought she didn't ask me about my background. I ran track and field in Boulder, Colorado, in Denver and Boulder. That is like <laughs> lung bursting. I got good lungs um, from that. But and instead, if I got that race correction, instead that assumes that I have weaker lungs just because I'm black, um, that is not good medicine. And is it the case that there are no uh, consistent observable differences that science should take into account? Or is it more the case that 
So many of these have been disproved. It's better just to get away from the idea overall because it's likely we're making a mistake. I don't think that, you know, looking at people according to their race, looking at people's bodies according to their race um, makes a lot of sense today. And um, I'm not a physician, so I can't say if there's zero times, um, you know, it should ever uh, be taken into consideration. But certainly with kidney function, with lung function, with the pulse oximeter that's measuring you differently if you have dark skin because it's calibrated for white skin. Those things don't make sense. And you know what I find exciting is a lot of where the change is happening is from the ground up among medical students. One of my favorite groups is called the Institute for Healing and Justice in Medicine. And it's medical students at um, the University of California at San Francisco, and they're going to public health school at Berkeley. And they have created a really smart framework and really kind of radical um, framework. And they're trying to educate other medical students about how to stop thinking about, you know, race as um, a marker. Are the professors telling them there is no there's no science behind this? This is just the way it's been done. But what are you going to do about it? Or the professors telling them there actually is some science too. maybe not in all cases, maybe not with kidney function. But in some cases, we're doing better science by taking race into account. I think that it's more the latter. It's more the way business has been as usual. And because it's in textbooks, then it's hard to argue if you have a textbook that has the sort of old way of thinking. But some of the professors are also the professors and the, you know, clinicians also believe that stuff because that's the way it's hard to just I think we started this conversation saying it's hard to change thinking. And so it's also hard to change sort of long-standing, entrenched thinking. And so it excites me that it's the medical students um, often who are pushing back, not only, but who are pushing back against it. And, uh, and at minimum, questioning it. Questioning, where does this come from? How do you know this? How do you know Black people have different kidney function? How do you know Black people, no matter even if they're from Colorado, have um, weaker lungs? Why is this? Why is this machine calibrated this way? Asking the question. If you Google black women mortality, what you, I don't know, should, but I would think that that could lead to many, many, many results. But what it always leads to, and I don't know, maybe just my Google is affected because I've been looking it up a lot lately, is black women maternal mortality. A big amount of emphasis in the last few years has been put on that. It came up in the presidential race, uh, many of the candidates citing the disparity in maternal mortality, came up in the uh, in the mayoral race here in New York, as a New Yorker you probably know. So it's become a big issue. When you look at, I take your point, the number ideally would be zero people dying. When you look at the actual numbers of people who are dying or affected by this, it is uh, horrifyingly large, but not so large as perhaps to overwhelm and um, create stress in people. I talked to a friend who was considering becoming pregnant and she wrote about how afraid and frightened she was because she has read everything about this and knows to do the right thing, but also knows that 
of the disparities in New York City, and there is almost nothing that she could do, she thought. And I pointed out to her, well, you know the numbers and you know the percentages, but and you know the differences in rates, but look at the actual numbers. Look at the actual numbers of black women in New York who have died versus white women. And it's a dozen. You know, it's a difference of accountable number. I don't know that that should be so affecting your decision. Maybe uh, it's even worse to be so stressed out by that statistic than it would be if you didn't know the statistic to begin with. You know, but then again, and I think this is my third then again, I'm like you, I'm a journalist and I default to more knowledge is better. But what do you think of that? Or have you thought of that? That it's important to get the message out, but should it also be important to um, contextualize what the actual odds are of this happening to you? Well, I'm going to answer that in maybe three ways. The first is um, a lot of people prefer to look not at mortality, but morbidity. So the near death. So for every, I think it's at this point, for every person who um, dies, something like 70 have a terrible experience where a near death, the person in my, you know, my other acquaintance that I was talking about almost bled to death and was treated like she was drug seeking. So if still, so even if you're looking at, okay, it's only this small amount, but why should anybody have a terrible experience and why should it be disproportionately black? And by the way, New York City is worse than the country at large. And that's why I was, I, at, when I was working on my initial story, I almost was centered here because I was so alarmed that New York City was worse when we have certainly the best hospital system, but also, uh, you know, high levels of inequality. The second thing is, I think what I say to people is my mother always gave me good advice. And she said, um, people who are too blasé <laughs> are the ones who run into trouble. People who are a little bit vigilant about and a little bit worried are the ones who prepare better. So what I say to people is most of you birthing folks are not going to die in childbirth, the vast majority. You're not, you may not even have a terrible time. It may be fine, but why not? figure out how to prepare. What I like is growing numbers of people um, are training to be doulas and social justice oriented doulas that are like birthmark in the story that I wrote that ha are, you know, work with, with birthing people on a sliding scale. There's a fantastic group in Brooklyn. Um, there are gr groups in Harlem where I teach um, college. And so I'm really excited about that. So you don't, if, if you are fearful, which as my mom says, it's better to be a little bit vigilant, then you get someone to go with you. Some I've been certainly been to a lot of births of my friends because they know I'm super neurotic and worried and vigilant. So I'm your person. I'm your, what, what is it the called? I will suck up the emotions for you so you can just have your baby and be there and asking questions. So I think that that is just a simple way. And it speaks to the kinship of weathering. Like if we take care of each other and, you know, as human beings and say, well, the system may be unfair to us, it seems like, then why don't you take care of yourself and bring someone with you, whether it's a doula who is a, you know, paid person, or it's just a crazy friend like me. Linda Villarosa is a journalism professor at CUNY, the City University of New York, a contributor to the 1619 Project, and author now of Under the Skin, The Hidden Toll of Racism on American Lives and on the Health of Our Nation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Really good talking to you. 
And now the spiel. On July 1st, the Indianapolis Star reported the story of the doctor of a 10-year-old girl who was forced to leave the state of Ohio in order to legally secure an abortion in Indiana. Ohio's law was set at a six-week limit. The girl was three days over that. So Indiana, which will soon be implementing their own abortion ban, was chosen as the safest place to take the child. I couldn't believe it, which is different from I didn't believe it, which we will get to. I encountered the story, I think, on July 2nd and wondered why it didn't get more attention. But I was also aware there was some doubt around the story. It was only sourced to one doctor, a Caitlin Bernard. I remember telling friends about it at a July 4th weekend barbecue. I am a fun guy. I'm a fun guy to have at the barbecue with my choice of content, of conversation. And I do also remember saying, of course, only sourced to one doctor. But still, my God, can you believe this? On July 5th, oh, by the way, they mostly could. On July 5th, a service I subscribed to called Ground News, the Blind Spot Report, documented that this story was indeed a blind spot for those on the right. Only 12% of the sources that covered it were right-leaning. That would soon change, but not for reasons of news value or humanity. The first big difference was that on Friday, July 8th, Joe Biden mentioned the story in remarks. Just last week, it was reported that a 10-year-old girl was a rape victim in Ohio, 10 years old, and she was forced to have to travel out of the state to Indiana to seek to terminate the presidency and maybe save her life. That last part is my judgment, 10 years old. 10 years old, raped, six weeks pregnant, already traumatized, was forced to travel to another state Imagine being that little girl. Just, I'm I'm serious, just imagine being that little girl, 10 years old. And the reaction to that was instantaneous, spasm-like. The right pounded him. Fox News' Emily Campagno. For me, what I find so deeply offensive is that they had to make up a fake one. There's actually... Here's Jesse Waters. But if this horrific story isn't accurate, and the abortion doctor and the Indianapolis star are misleading us, and the mainstream media and the president of the United States seizing on another hoax, then this is absolutely shameful and fits a pretty dangerous pattern of politically timed disinformation. Waters brought on Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost, who didn't flat out say the story was a hoax, but said they have no record of it. He can't imagine an Ohio law enforcement official who wouldn't want to know about it and added over a crappy Zoom line. Something maybe even more telling, Jesse, is my office runs the state crime lab. Any case like this, you're going to have a rape kit, you're going to have biological evidence, and you would be looking for DNA uh, analysis, which we do most of the DNA analysis in Ohio. There is no case request for analysis that looks anything like this. I'm not saying it didn't happen, said Yost. Quote, What I'm saying to you is that there is not a damn scintilla of evidence and shame on the Indianapolis paper that ran this thing on a single source. Only it did happen. It was documented by Columbus Child Protective Services and an arrest was soon made as reported on NBC. At an arraignment Wednesday in Columbus, Ohio, a judge ordered 27-year-old rape suspect Gerson Fuentes held on $2 million bail. It's my understanding she, in fact, just turned 10 years old. 
Joe's claimed he never made a misstatement. Congressman Jim Jordan said he was engaged in media criticism, not factual assertion when he tweeted the original allegation was a lie, and he has since deleted that tweet. So here we are now, in a place where there are a lot of things that are deeply troubling, among them, well, A, that rapes of 10-year-olds happen in this world. B, many American states have laws forcing little girls to bear children. C, the anti-abortion misinformation machine is unscrupulous. But also D, the fact that this didn't become a huge story because it was a horror. This became a huge story because it was a partisan food fight. The reason we all know about this isn't that a 10-year-old got raped and couldn't get an abortion in her home state. That was insufficient to elevate it to top of mind. Of course, I heard about the story. You could have too. It wasn't in no outlets. I was telling the fact that a 10-year-old got raped and couldn't have an abortion to people around the July 4th barbecue grill, but I remember no one hearing of it then. But now they, and people like them, have heard of it, you've heard of it, and the biggest reason is that it became a story that makes Republicans look bad, and boy does it make Republicans look bad. But realize that this is a necessary element for a story to break through, not just Republicans in Republican or conservative media, Democrats looking bad are the major point of almost all their coverage. It can't, a story can't just be arresting in and of itself. It has to implicate the other side. Negative partisanship is the dominant force in our news culture. Top 10 stories of 2020, according to the AP, were all enough to get you very upset at the other side. One, coronavirus. Two, George Floyd's death sparks protests. Three, presidential election. Four, Ruth Bader Ginsburg dies. Five, John Lewis dies. Six, impeachment. Seven, Weinstein rape trial. Then we get to Kobe Bryant and murder hornets. Remember the murder hornets. But all the other ones, they're driven by a hatred of the other side. Coronavirus, well, who's the other side? Depending on your media, you were definitely mad at a Democrat or a Republican during that one. Well, what about the George Floyd protests? Something like 80% of the country thought that the officers who killed him should have been convicted of murder. Right, but half of the country that was watching those protests was glued to a story of social justice outrage, and the other half was outraged at the outrage. I mean, back to coronavirus, pandemics used to not have a partisan affiliation. Okay, AIDS was political, but, and this is sad, Democrats and Republicans alike were slow to move on it. The Spanish flu wasn't political. Gerald Ford issuing vaccines that he was criticized for was political, but it wasn't partisan. I went back to the coverage of the time. It wasn't generally, I so hate Republicans and they're giving vaccines that we don't think they need. Nor was it, I so hate the Republicans fear-mongering or I so hate the Democrats who are opposing Ford on this. Just wasn't like that then. That wasn't the lens through which we viewed the world. Without a politician or a political actor of the other party being implicated in some way, all of these stories become less urgent, less emotional, and less engaging. So they have less of a chance to break through and for you to know about them. Take natural disasters. We've always had them for almost all of my life. A hurricane was a hurricane. But now every extreme weather event is said to tie back to the effects of climate change. That 
is true or can be true. We don't know if any one specific event goes back to climate change, but in general, it's true. So it takes on a partisan sheen. We have always had mass senseless murders and killings, but now those become, why won't the Republicans do anything? Or on the other side, why do the Democrats always demagogue these issues, which are really about mentally ill people doing what no society can stop them from doing? We've always had illegal immigrants, sorry, undocumented workers who occasionally commit heinous crimes. Now, one side gets a diet of all those stories. The other side almost never does. I look at the top stories of 1990. One, Cold War's over. Two, Nelson Mandela released. Three, Margaret Thatcher forced out. You had junk bonds and Pete Rose and the savings and loan scandal, which actually was bipartisan. There wasn't necessarily a person on the other side to get mad at that drove coverage. I looked at 2010. I was just looking for a story of a decade. Top story, BP oil disaster. Also on that list, political stories. There was an election in Obamacare, but the Haiti earthquake was up there. Chile mine rescue was up there. And WikiLeaks, which wasn't driven by partisan vitriol. The driving feature of the news media of today is making loathed figures look bad. And then there's Twitter. Twitter's for dunking. That is Twitter's essential function. It's the $40 billion clapback machine. And stories do not break through unless they anger a reader or viewer and deepen a loathing for a figure or cast of figures already held in low esteem. I will acknowledge a good counter-argument, which is, it's not a media story. Reality's gotten negatively partisan. Media covers reality. I think that's valid. But my main critique isn't that media goes out of the way to rile up even deep-seated animosity when there is none. There is a lot of deep-seated animosity. My critique is, and and by the way, there deserves to be at least some and probably quite a bit of deep-seated animosity towards the political agenda of the other side. We have gotten further apart than we usually are in terms of what we want from our elected officials and what they can deliver. My observation, however, is this. Absent the animosity, news never really hits the kind of culture-wide saturation that we saw with the story of the 10-year-old girl from Ohio and the horrible circumstances around her. That story, just based on humanity or the coldest assessment of what's the definition of smart public policy, should have grabbed us all. But it didn't until we were given a chance to grab for the throat of a hated figure. People who do deserve a lot of blame in this case. It's just that we shouldn't need their shameful intervention to pay attention. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the assistant producer of The Gist. And Joel Patterson, well, that guy, he's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the COO of Peachfish Productions. And my heart, The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Jeepperoo, Dooperoo. And thanks for listening.